Human Earthlings of Middling Means by Jared Gentile, read by Kanal Rajesh. Hobie was a chronically tired young man. His drooping eyelids were ringed by purple shadows that weighed his overburdened eyes, dragging them down into dreamless sleep. All day he wandered in a daze, going through the motions to the checkbox factory where he checked boxes since one of the machines was broken. Before that, he was unemployed for six months while his machine-operated temp agency searched for a company with a broken machine he could fill in for. The trouble was, machines failed infrequently, and so Hobie was frequently out of work. The reception of the checkbox factory was cold. All the other machines were still operational, and they greeted Hobie's arrival with silence. Hobie felt snubbed, in a glazed-over sort of way, but he tried to act polite and easygoing about it. In truth, he could hardly hold a grudge or focus on checking boxes, since he was so incredibly tired. He thought getting a job would make him less tired, since now he was doing something, instead of lying in bed all day, feeling his life drain out of his limp body into the indent in his mattress, but it seemed he wasn't any less or more tired than before. So it wasn't about work. He deduced lazily while checking a box marked single mother in a 2006 census form from eastern New Zealand, which had sunk into the ocean 30 years ago. What could it be that's making me so tired? Toby asked aloud. Machines weren't programmed to answer, so they didn't. All the other living humans were either obscenely wealthy, living off passive income and having their every whim fulfilled by a fleet of loyal androids, or toughing it out in a new golden planet of opportunity in the dustbin of space. There just wasn't any space for people like Hobie left on Earth-1. His parents were dead, and the Federation confiscated his inheritance under a new tax law that funded a recreational rocket series which launched the wealthy into space and non-reusable lead rockets whose casings landed in distant planets' oceans to poison the fledgling life taking root there. So, Hobie was alone. Save for human earthlings of middling means, an internet support group he created while unemployed. So far, there were six members, but at least three of them were bots who desperately wanted his social security number for some unfathomable reason. The other two accounts were dormant and quite possibly abandoned. Who joins an internet support group to never give or solicit support? A sick person, Hobie concluded in a fog of hazy thoughts. He craved warm sheets, a shower, and a warm set of smooth limbs to entangle himself with. However, none of those things were available on the cold floor of the checkbox factory, where Hobie was flanked on all sides by machines who longed for nothing more than to check boxes without rest until the sun exploded. Maybe Hobie was dying? It was certainly within the realm of possibility. Humans were always mucking about, dying all over the place. At least that's how the machines felt. Machines felt Hobie was squishy, lazy, and poaching a good job that a machine temp would have performed infinitely better. Or they would have felt that way, if they'd been programmed to feel. Finally at home in his Super Saver shelf domicile, Hobie collapsed gratefully on his little cot. He turned over on his side to peer out the skyscraper window at New York's lambent skyline and foreign architecture. It was a beautiful, incomprehensible sight to behold and it was all the more welcome from the comfort of his bed. He slept and dreamed of nothing, and woke up ten hours later, tired for work. Maybe he was dying, he thought with self-pity. Across town, Summer wheeled to her office building from the train. 
After machines took charge of Earth One's infrastructure, public transit metamorphosed into a punctual, clean service that catered beautifully to the needs of the disabled. However, there weren't any working-class humans commuting anymore, so Salma rode alone and hardly needed the intricate and thoughtful latticework the machines designed for people who used wheelchairs, since the rest of the train car was empty. As were all the other cars, and all the subway stops, and practically all the streets. Salma was of middling means, and worked in an office more for a reason to leave her super-saver apartment than out of necessity. In the office, she checked data sheets to ensure all her company's machines were operational. There were, of course, machines that could do what she did, but at a certain point, her company figured someone would need to check the machine checker, since if the machine's code was damaged, it stood to reason the machinated machine checker's code would also be damaged, and so on and so on into infinity. So, that was what Selma did for a living. She stood to reason from her wheelchair. Her family was killed in a freak accident between two self-driving cars when she was little, which left her a paraplegic orphan. There were operations to restore the use of one's legs, but she wasn't interested. She kept her disabilities a testament to her grief and the memory of her dead family, and as a middle finger to the machines, to rub their failure into their motherboards each and every day. The machines despised her and concocted hurtful nicknames behind her back that made them howl with binary. Or they would have, had they been programmed to. Besides her disability, Selma was afflicted with chronic insomnia. She simply couldn't get to bed, try as she might, and so the line between sleep and wake blurred with the days into a pastel, surreal slideshow of images and disconcerting familiarity that puzzled her fogged brain. Maybe I'm dying, she thought absentmindedly while losing her place in the spreadsheet she was checking. Damn, I've lost my place, she cursed. There had been one change recently. She joined an online support group for human earthlings of middling means. Four of the members were bots who tried to acquire her credit card number for some unfathomable reason, and the man who started the group seemed sad, balding, and depressed Selma to look at, so she decided not to post anything. The days went by without rest, and now, several weeks later, there was still nothing to speak of but the internet support group she decided she was better than. Wheeling down the hall of her machine-populated office, Selma formed vague half-thoughts about how she ended up with this life and this wheelchair, and she resigned to make a post, though it seemed fairly desperate. The trouble was, Selma was worse than desperate. The unceasing onslaught of time and routine was eroding her, severing her connection to her needs. She retained vague, neon-lit inclinations that whirred by. Odd signs that flitted at her periphery but made no pressing demands otherwise. And now she felt making a post on the Lonely Earthlings page was one of them. That night, after a long day of checking boxes, Hobie collapsed into sleep without a second or first thought. And without checking his support group for notifications, he checked quite enough that day already. So Selma sat awake all night in her wheelchair, staring at her post which read, who would have thought, of the six human earthlings of middling means, four of them would open the conversation by asking my credit card number, which meant the only real one was Hobie, who, she supposed, might still be a bot, but what kind of bot created support groups without asking for your credit card number? A poorly programmed one, she judged. All those bots trying to scam each other into infinity almost made Selma laugh, but she was too sleep-deprived to tell whether it was funny or not. Hobie didn't make it to work the next day. 
He fell asleep mid-stride and collapsed onto the sidewalk, where he bumped his head and had to be sent to the hospital by public service machines. Selma was so sleep-deprived, she hallucinated her office building entrance as where the Hudson docks were, and she had to be fished out and sent to the hospital by the Marine Guard machines. The machines rolled their laser eyes and crossed their robo-arms to the incompetent humans in their zany, ill-advised antics. Or they would've, had they been programmed to. In the hospital, Selma slept like a stone, and Hobie sat awake all night, transfixed by the sight of another human, and a beautiful female human at that. She was slender, dotted with becoming freckles, and her mouth had a funny twist at its end. Maybe he wasn't dying after all, he thought. The moment Hobie succumbed to sleep, Selma woke up, feeling well-rested at last. She was shocked to see the man from the support group across the room. So his profile picture had been accurate, and here was another real, live human who wasn't holed up in a penthouse miles above the ground, hooked up to gold feeding tubes. He was cuter in person, she thought. Or maybe it was just the fact that he actually existed. The balding suited him. It lent his stubbly round face a sort of sweet humility. She could study him for hours. And she had to, because her wheelchair was nowhere to be found. Hobie woke up at noon, and the two strangers stared at each other with embarrassed wonder, adjusting their hair and half-smiling while they racked their brains for a way out of silence. Hobie blushed so much that the blood went out of his legs and they fell asleep, which, unbeknownst to him, gave them one more thing in common. Hi, I'm Selma, she finally managed. Hi, I'm Hobie, he replied with relief. After that, they spoke for hours. It turned out they had almost everything in common. Or maybe it just seemed that way, since everyone else they knew was a machine. They speculated that perhaps their respective accidents were actually planned by the machines with the design of setting them up, but the idea rang so true it made them uncomfortable, and neither could manage to force a dismissive laugh. Otherwise, their conversation proceeded smoothly. Selma made a conscious effort to warm to Hobie's lackluster looks, and Hobie reassured himself that he was mature enough to date a woman in a wheelchair. In truth, he was terrified to date anyone at all. The wheelchair was not the deciding fear factor. Eventually, a medical machine came by to discharge them, but it didn't bring a wheelchair for Selma. Instead, it touched a metal prod to Selma's left leg and electrocuted her. After the initial shock on her part and outrage from Hobie, Selma found that she could move her legs again. She leapt out of bed and pounded on the machine with all her might, hurling curses and fists before dissolving onto the floor in a puddle of helpless tears and bruised hands. The machine wheeled away nonplussed. While Hobie attempted to console Selma and help her back onto her feet, she fought him off and instructed him forcefully to leave her alone. Hobie meant to oblige, but his legs froze. It wasn't that his body was sluggish and carrying out his mind's commands. He felt crystal clear and alert for the first time in years. Selma stared at him through bleary eyes, befuddled and hardened at the same time. She'd spent her whole life watching people leave. Her parents, the humans of middling means who fled to space, the wealthy of opulent means who fled reality. And here at last was a man who stayed. And no matter how pathetic and mediocre he was, that meant something.